Welcome to Simon and Whiten, the podcast at the intersection of business, media, and politics. I'm Christian Whiten, former diplomat and finance guy, joined as always by co-host Mark Simon, a longtime media executive and Asia business guy. Uh, today, lots to talk about, Mark, starting with Evergrande, which has moved markets, caused a significant decrease on Monday and continued turbulence since then. Um, you know, everyone seems to be asking, you have this Chinese behemoth, um, Estimates vary as to what size and impact it has on the Chinese market and what impact it would have on uh, the uh, economy back here or the broader stock market. You've heard numbers of $300 billion of exposure. I don't know where that number is coming from. And a lot of people speculating as this company um, fails to meet its obligations, its debt payment obligations, whether it's going to get a bailout from the Chinese government and, and what that would look like. Uh, you did business in the part of the, this part of the world and continue to for a very long time. What do you think's going on here and what do you think the Chinese are gonna do? I think the overriding story is demographics and just overbuilding. Um, a lot of free money, a lot of cheap money for the last 15, 20 years. Evergrande just benefited from that. You know, as I've said, you know, the greatest economist ever is probably the CFO of Evergrande, um, who's taking them into this position because now he does not only do the banks own banks own the problem, but now the Chinese government and the Communist Party of China owns the problem. So. I don't know if his if that group's life is going to be good or they're going to be in jail forever, but you got to give them credit for actually getting that much money out of people. I don't even know if it's three hundred billion. I always worry when you name a number three hundred billion and the people on the other side of it don't push back. In other words, if it was two hundred billion, you could be sure you'd hear from the Chinese or Evergrande. Oh, it's only two hundred billion. No, it's three hundred billion plus, and we have no idea where that's going to go. Look. I get really um, um, excited about this in one way. The U.S. system is built to fail. We have failures everywhere. We do commercials with Michael Jordan about how many times we fail. Businesses fail. The whole thing that happens here is you fail and you restart, but that cleanses the system. The Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese system is not meant to have failures. They do not put it in the mix. Everything's supposed to succeed. And then what happens is everything's been succeeding quite well so they can absorb a few failures. I don't know if they absorb a failure this big for two reasons. First of all, it is so huge. Secondly, and I think it's really a big deal, is who else is in trouble? We saw another property company of similar, not size, but of you know basically still 40 or $50 billion, lost 80% of their capital yesterday. You know, in other words, their, their, their price dropped 87% on the market. We've seen the Hong Kong market. Henderson Land took a big hit on this. Other people are taking hits all across the marketplace. And that's because essentially we don't, I think we don't believe that the Chinese have a plan to fail. They don't, they don't have it in their system. I mean, you know, you look, even look in 2008, 2009, there was somewhat of a, idea okay this is a giant failure but we'll come out the other side i'm not sure the uh, marxist leninist party of the ccp thinks that way so how do i see this liquidation i think basically whether it's 300 billion 400 billion 500 billion right across the top everybody's taking a haircut probably half their heads are getting taken off say so that takes it down in half everybody's going to lose something all the accrued interest payments will be considered capital payments right away. So that people, you know, that that's all gone. Then we're going to start having people being forced to take assets, you know, worthless assets and and 
you know, have, have that as your payment or your collateral, you'll get to sign up for that. So you, you'll get a shop or you'll get a piece of dirt or you'll get whatever it is on the valuation that the Chinese Communist Party puts on it. So that's going to be even worse. And then the final thing is, you know, there is going to be, I, I find it ridiculous to think there is going to be some significant hits for some of the foreign investors, Goldman, SoftBank, JP Morgan. A lot of people here are going to be holding the bat left holding the bag. Now, does that mean anything if Goldman loses 11 billion or 12 billion? I'm not sure. You know, you never know. They just bounce back back. It's only the shareholders money for them. But I do think that we're going to see the Chinese do a bailout in their own way, but it's not going to look like the bailouts we've seen in the past. There's going to be a tremendous amount of pain. And I believe that's not by choice. I believe that they know that they have an entire system out there that if people saw the big guy getting bailed out, everybody else would be getting right in line too. In other words, they'd be, they'd be looking for some money. And, you know, you can get to a trillion dollars pretty quickly if you're doing these types of real estate bailouts. It's hard for people to really grasp. New York City, what is New York City? New York City square foot rental. I was watching Fox Business the other day and the young woman, Dagan McCow, was saying, you know, $2,000 a square foot or something like that. I mean, Shanghai can be up to seven, $8,000 a square foot. Really? Is it really worth that much on a global scale? You know, and then you go, you go into Guangzhou and you find stuff at three, $4,000 a square foot. So the thing is, there, there, there could be some real adjustments coming. And when you have so much of your wealth in the country tied up in this, it's going to be a bad scene. It's going to be a really bad scene. Right, right, right. And I think that's the big question is, too, whether it's beyond real estate, that China has this, this well-earned reputation of having a tremendous amount of zombie debt, of, of capital that's allocated um, because you are uh, in good graces with the party, because you are a state-owned enterprises or, or you work closely with one. Um, and so <laughs> if all of that starts being called into question, and of course, over years, you've had U.S. exposure uh, increase, then, you know, what really is the consequence? Um, let's circle back to China in just a second. But I'm curious with, you know, you saw this spook, the overall market in the U.S., even things, uh, it was a broad sell off, it extended even to some commodities, uh, which are being pushed up by inflation and probably will be continued to be pushed up. But um, you had a broad impact on the U.S. market. I'm curious what you think, you know, you have, you have companies like Robinhood, this darling of fintech uh, that has been a pioneer in zero uh, commission trade. So free trades, essentially, you then ask, well, how do they make their money? They make their money off of market makers, the difference between the bid and the ask. So um, it's a real question of whether these young um, people who have started trading in the pandemic, who have joined up with Robinhood, who think they're getting free trades, when in fact they may be paying through the nose on the bid ask um, spread, um, you know, whether they're, they're really getting a deal, but here's a company that's valued at $35 billion. <laughs> keep in mind, yeah, keep in mind Citibank, I think is about 130. Uh, they have only about 500, 400, 500 million in revenue, they have the same amount in, in losses. Uh, and this is mirrored by another company, Revolut, which just said it's going to do the same thing. It's a fintech company from Europe, uh, same crazy valuation, 33 billion, same amount of losses, uh, going to come in and do zero, um, zero commission trade. So, you know, if there is a sustained downturn, I mean, is this this sort of starts to look like a house of cards that as in 2000, uh, all of these people who think that this is a video game and who win more than they lose just because the market has been going up so much. Uh, I mean, do you think this is is a bubble? This, this yeah, I mean, 
Look, here's my advice to the major shareholders of Robinhood. Take 20 cents on the dollar. Go away, change your name, hide for five years, and then people will forget about this. This is insane. $35 billion for an app that basically rips people off with the app, with the spread. I mean, that's that's all this thing is. I have met more young people who think that they are I have guys ask me questions about, well, what do you think about this, Mr. Simon? Or what do you think about that? And I said, I'm not smart enough to think about these things. You know, what do you, what do you think about the latest stock here? Look, we've done one thing. There are certain things that are a mistake. We've made trading probably too easy. In other words, when I trade for some of the people that I work for and for the, some of the clients that I work for, I have an institutional certification. In other words, In other words, I'm supposed to know what I'm doing. The problem you have now is you get somebody, they get a Robinhood app, and they think we're trading six, seven times a day. And it's really just down to the thing. It's the old thing. When you get in the taxi cab in Hong Kong, when I was in Hong Kong, when the taxi driver was talking to you about the latest stock market, that was like a sell sign to a lot of guys. When you have 19-year-olds and 20-year-olds, and my favorite the other day was I saw a guy, I'm not kidding you, I was at Starbucks, I saw a guy, and he was playing on Robinhood, and he was talking to his friend that he was going to buy one and a half shares of Google. He was going to buy a half share of Google. And I'm like, come on. I'm glad people are investing. I am not putting that down. But I, I really think we've just made it so easy that everybody walks in the door. You know, I'm not looking for the days of the return to Charlie Sheen where somebody is cold calling you or something like that. But it's just ridiculous. And yeah, a bubble's coming. It's here. These fintech companies, there's no way. I was looking around the SAAS sector, you know, services software sector the other day, looking at stuff with 97 P&Es, no P&E because it's valued this high. I get very nervous. There's no underlying business. There's nothing there. And I'm with Robin Hood. I mean, I just, I see it as an app. Is an app really worth that much? They don't offer anything except for a spread. And the problem they're going to have is, is that Charles Schwab's of the world and the other people will find a way to duplicate this. And again, they'll be lucky if they get the college kids. Robin Hood will get the college kids and the other folks again. But, you know, anybody who's got more than thirty dollars or $40,000 in their account, they're going to probably go to somebody reputable, TD Waterhouse, Charles Schwab, and just basically, you know, pay to get that. And also, I, I saw Robin Hood the other day. It seems to me they're trying to sell you everything from, you know, music to Netflix subscriptions to everything else. I'm like, all right, you're a financial app. Be a financial app. Don't be everything else. But my, I'm telling you, if I got a valuation like that and I was Robin Hood, I would, I was the guys, I would sell out tomorrow. I would find somebody <laughs> out, right. you know, I'd get a fake doctor's note or something like that, you know, and I, I would leave. I would depart, Absolutely. take your take, money and run. Take the money and run. No, that's right. In fact, I tried, I don't short that many stocks, but I did try to short Robinhood uh, from my little old E-Trade account. And the the going rate uh, previously, this is before Monday, was 70%, <laughs> roughly APR, um, which means you can, in fact, borrow the short, but people are expecting this to go on. Options are priced quite high, put options, of course. Um, and then I looked at shorting it again on Monday as the market declined and, and E-Trade was unable to, to find any, anyone willing to take the other side of that bet. So uh, the market seems savvy to this. 
I, I just, I, I, I just, you know, I, I, it's the old saying: you walk into a room and you can't figure out who the sucker is. It's you, you know. <laughs> and 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 I'm just telling you, it's just I, I am, I am constantly shocked by the ego of people who think that they can somehow time the market or beat the market or, you know, they have some insight on something that somebody else you know, doesn't have, there's a Hong Kong saying, a Chinese saying, like, there's no such thing as a frog in the road. The idea being is the city's very crowded. People like frog. It tastes good. There's nobody just, a frog just doesn't appear in the road and nobody else sees it. You know what I'm saying? In other words, so there's, it's, and, and there's no, it's basically, you know, there's no, there's no eureka moment that just one person has, you know what I'm saying? I mean, the people who have been constantly having these eureka moments or the quants and people like that who figure out some technical way around the market but you know the idea that you can pick this first that or this and that you know maybe you get lucky probably you don't right there's this there's the economist joke where you may get lucky you know two economists are walking down the sidewalk and they pass a 20 dollar bill on the ground and just walk right past it and one asks the other it's like why did you pick that up like, well if you believe in perfect markets then it would have already been picked up <laughs> um, I have lots more economist jokes too, incidentally, where that came from. Uh, switch to travel and, and the and, and the business of travel. Um, you had uh, early in the pandemic, Donald Trump put a ban on uh, most travel from Europe, most tourist non-essential travel, which captured business travel as well. Um, at the end of his administration, close to the end, he actually lifted that ban. But in comes Joe Biden, who ran on um, taking COVID much more seriously and being an expert on this. So slapped the ban on, on tourism from Europe again. Uh, and of course, we've had problems with the Canadian and Mexican borders being closed, sort of, where you could fly across them, but you couldn't drive across them. Now the Biden administration has finally said Europeans can come here. This was after they were very upset because they started letting Americans in some countries in spring. Uh, and now um, everyone will be able to come if they've been uh, vaccinated and, and take a, um, a simple antigen test, uh, you know, three days or fewer before travel. Uh, what do you make of this? Is this uh, too little too late? Is, is, do you think Biden has a coherent plan to bring back the travel industry? Um, is this going to well, I'd, uh, I'd be as interested to hear what you have to say, because I know that you actually, you know, work with travel related companies and, you know, destinations. And so, you know, you, you just see the massive frustration. I went up to Purdue University this weekend to see my son. So we flew up to Chicago. The planes were packed. I mean, I must say it was it was really encouraging. The airport was busy. Newark was busy. Chicago was very, very busy on the way back. But it was just ironic because the Notre Dame game was up there. And of course, everybody was coming back on the plane and their dreadful Notre Dame outfits. And, you know, what happened is, is that you're sitting there thinking to yourself, okay, this was just 90,000 people together in a stadium going screaming, you know, just expelling everything everywhere. No mask, no nothing. You know what I'm saying? Beard, having a good time, bars, everything. Then <laughs> they have to go back, get on a plane, mask up. And if they so much as look at each other without a mask in an airport, you know, you're put in jail. I really think the problem with the travel is the gov as usual the government is so far behind in everything. I think the Europeans are completely right to be upset with the U.S. Completely right. They opened up. We're trying to get the economy going. Tourism is a much larger part of their economy going from our you know our way to their way than the other than the other side. 
And then Biden just comes in and boom, because it's domestic political consumption, because, you know, again, it gets down to this whole thing where they don't care. In other words, right. I really don't think they care. There are people being hurt. And I, 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 I think this is really going to be an issue that we see our theme that we see going for the next couple of years, where basically elites just say, oh, this works for me. I'm fine. You know, and I was watching you on Fox Business this morning, you know, and you guys had a great segment about the San Francisco mayor. She's just like, I'm going to do what I want to do when I want to do it. But all you other guys are going to wear masks. OK, I'm going to do this how I want it to happen. You guys are going to wear masks. It just the travel industry is the one industry that I think probably doesn't need the protection that they think it needs because people are naturally spaced out. People are going different places. But the rules and the regulations make it just so difficult to figure out what's going to happen. In Canada, where I, it's, it's, it's pretty well known that I oversee a small hotel group up there. In Canada, we're on the border there. We don't know what to tell people. Get a test. You have to come over. This is what you do. All these things. Once you have a person have one question for you, it throws everything off. You know what I'm saying? You know, you, if you're an unvaccinated person, you can't come in. That's, I guess, the way it is. But it's, you're, you're killing a lot of jobs. Um, and I think, in my mind, that we're going we're gonna to see um, a lot more hardship coming into this fall. Because, you know, the, tur- the tourism season is kind of ending. In other words, you know, probably by really end of October, middle of October, you know, people aren't traveling on tourism anymore. So right, again, right. it's going to be a nice cold winter once again. Another cold, cold winter. That's it's a shame because I mean, first of all, the delay in getting to this point. Uh, when people come here from abroad to travel, that counts as a U.S. export. We're essentially exporting the service. Right. So Americans go to Europe as they did in significant yum- numbers this summer. Great for Europe, bad for us. Uh, and you know, this idea that this is something that should be obvious even to bureaucrats that they don't. The idea of just taking a pause in your business for two years and that waiters won't go and get other jobs or enter other professions that people, especially skilled ones, people who do it really well. And, you know, that goes through that, the whole food chain, tour guides, uh, people winning capital into buses, into cars and vans and airplanes and things like that. Uh, This also, uh, even though it may be solving itself a bit with US Europe travel, um, and that just shows, frankly, how Frank, U.S., North America, Europe, the Middle East are way ahead of East Asia, which is supposed to be well, the most energetic, capitalist, creative part of the world, not including China. Um, and yeah, with Taiwan, why would I like to go with Japan? It's not just that I can't go, even though I'm double vaccinated and willing to take a test before and after and jump through the hoops. It's that there's no plan in place. I don't even know if I'll be able to in February and March. And that's it's like the, the no. travel industry has so little political power. It's somewhat shocking. That's actually incredibly true. You were just in Europe. I mean, what was the attitude like in Europe compared to, you know, is 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 it as bad? Or I don't, I don't think it is what it's I've been pre- told. It's, it's laid back. It's like the middle of the U.S. You know, if you're going through uh, Denver or Dallas or Chicago, uh, you know, of course, when you're in an airport, you have these mass rules, but it seems normal. It seems busy. People are comfortable. And still, if you go to I haven't been to New York in, in a long time now, but uh, often to Washington and uh, the West Coast on occasion, it's still set back. So I was in Croatia, it's Southern Europe, it's New Europe. 
um, you know, the, the staff, uh, probably because of the chain that they're part of at the hotel are wearing masks, although sometimes they just wear it as the, the chin diaper, not actually doing anything. And, you know, all of the guests, you can tell the newbies who just got there, just got off the plane, they're wearing masks, but everyone else is dispensed with them. It's an open and airy place. Um, and it was fine, very welcoming. A whole lot of Americans, Croatia announced way before the EU, they were bringing Americans in. They did not care, or they care, but not that much. And both United and Delta put on nonstop flights, although we actually transited through Frankfurt, which was no problem at all. Also, you know, it was in Czech Republic. That's a tiny bit more buttoned down. But these places have, have largely returned to uh, work. And there's, you know, a factor here that no one is talking about seemingly on left and right, and that we are probably past apogee, past the peak of Delta Wave. If you look at the seven-day moving average. Yeah, that's true. Um, Very yeah, true. you look at it, there's a nice bell curve, and we have we are on, on the right side of that curve now going down. Deaths trail by seven to ten days, so they're sort of, uh, you know, uh, leveling off, which is good. Um yeah, you know, sort of makes you wonder what what uh, the Democrats and the Karens of the world are going to do when they, um, you know, don't have. This oh, to worry I, about. I, 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 I am a firm believer that when it comes to the travel industry, as you said, very good point. Not much political power. Um, unfortunately, in a lot of communities, it's seen as something they can take or they can take or leave. And I think also they look at that labor as basically you know, not important labor. They're not important parts of the community. Um, but I have to say, I, I was really somewhat amazed at just the irony of 80,000 people in the stadium, you know, going crazy. And then, you know, <laughs> you have to get back on an airplane and everybody has to put it back on while well, you're in a closed area and all that stuff. I said, okay, whatever, you know, but there is this there is this dissonance in in the community and it's a real problem for us it's a real problem in the terms that we have now got you know a small group of people and i think it's a small group of people whether it's the health professionals not the doctors and nurses but the health professional community and the uh, certain members of the political left who essentially have decided that this is a tool that they're not going to give up. And I use it. I use that. It's a tool. It's a tool to control people. Right. It's a tool for power. Australia would be fascinating. I mean, I'm just what I follow. It's, I mean, basically they're, they're almost open about it. We need you to do this. You have to do this. You have to do that. It's like, what am I five years old? You know, wear a mask in your house. If you're around, if you're in the house, you should wear a mask. I was watching some just going off on some guy for not wearing a mask in his house around his children. He's like, really? It's nuts. Yeah, it's nuts. I was earlier in the pandemic. I'd read the Honolulu star advertiser just in the same way. It's interesting to watch a, a car crash. Um, this state that is so dependent on tourism where you think yeah. that like Nevada, um, that you think that the industry there could snap its fingers and, and bureaucrats and politicians would snap too. And they don't. And now I switched to watching some Australian news because this this country with sort of a, a bit of a cowboy spirit, a bit like the American West, uh, is is using its army to patrol the streets of, of Sydney. And it's in lockdown because of a small number of cases. And there's there's no end in sight. They, you know, I guess in Melbourne, they now which is um, it's not New South Wales. It's the other uh, the other state. My, um my uh, knowledge of uh, Australian states is limited. But anyway, no. you know, now they have like a 40 part plan to eventually end a lockdown. It's just impossible. Look, it's just it's one of the things when you give people power who've never had power before, they use it. 
you know, it's it's and and we're seeing people exercise power. I still think the Carmine's thing with the women, the African-American women from Texas, I think that's going to be really something that we come back and really look at because. Right. And then this is the restaurant in, in the upper the restaurant in New, New York, York City. That, uh, basically had, yeah. turned they, they turned they basically had an incident with three African-American women. Initially, everybody said what's well, because they weren't vaccinated. And that was just made up. It's just made up. Even the police report didn't have that. And they said there was a racial incident about it. But look what happened in the first 15 or 16 hours, 24 hours. It was essentially Texans. Texans are here. Texans, Texan, Texans. You know, rednecks from Texans up here doing these things. If you saw Twitter, if you saw Instagram, even the papers were like, get them, get them, get them. And then when people started finding out about it, it was... Oh, well, and then they just, they snivel away, slide away, but they're waiting to come back one more time. I mean, I am shocked at, I'm really shocked at the, uh, the uh, lack of decency that people are treating other people with over this disease. You know, yeah. um, I generally wear a mask when I go out. I just do it. It's, it's one of the things I do, but I don't wear it everywhere. In other words, like, you know, I walked into a deli the other day. I didn't have my mask on. Nobody had a mask on. You know what I'm saying? But, you know, I went to a doctor's office. Yeah, I put a mask on. You know what I'm saying? That's what you do because people want you to do it. But it, it's I, I, I don't understand this. I, I do understand it, unfortunately. I do understand people like telling other people what to do. And you give them a tool to do it with, and they're going to use that tool every way they can. And COVID has become a tool in every single way. And we're seeing, even in Virginia right now, you know, Virginia's got an election this year, November, whatever, first week of November. They've already started voting. <laughs> Why? Because of COVID. We have to COVID, vote. COVID. We, need to have, we need to have 45 days of voting before COVID. No, you don't. A certain ideology, the left, likes to have 45 days of voting so they can go all over the place and, and look for like my dead mother and everybody else and try to find ballots and things like that. So it's just, it's, it's, you know, we're going to turn out, they, they're, and, and what's the tool? The tool for control here is COVID. Right. Because most people would say, you don't need 45 days. Well, you have to have COVID. Oh, whoa, that, that's true. We understand that. So, right. you know. Well, and in addition to mailing ballots to anyone, including, you know, the eight people who lived in your apartment uh, or, or, you know, whatever before, so you can vote their ballots. I'm convinced early elections help Democrats just because actually the media is more in charge before an election. I think as it gets very close in the final That's days right. of an election, uh, voters start looking at the candidates directly and the media's power is diminished. But 45 days out, you know, that bias still comes apart. I'm shifting one uh, a quick uh, media story. Piers Moore. Morgan, the famous British opinionist and reporter. Uh, I think he has a, a gig with the Daily Mail in the UK. He had a yeah. gig here with CNN that did not go well. And frankly, he often came across as arrogant smug in favor of gun control like the lecture Americans, although that was probably part of just being over at pointless CNN. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, you know, he's had a, a big resurgence. Um, he did not buy the Meghan Markle Prince Harry uh, self-pitying uh, uh, marathon that was going on there was critical of her, said he didn't believe her when she was on Oprah, got fired because of it, but seems to have actually helped his career. Now, uh, Murdoch land, um, you know, where he has had links for a very long time, um, throwing a lifeline, not even a lifeline, I'd say it's more than that, or, you know, it's not, <laughs> he doesn't need one, but uh, that he'll be coming to America again and writing for the New York Post. What do you, what do you make of that? Will that work with the Post's audience? 
I think Piers Morgan has become, you know, the guy had the guy's always had a good he's always had a good understanding of the arguments. I wouldn't say he picks the right arguments. I think the gun control argument, he had a very European understanding of it when he showed up with it. And I think, I wouldn't say he evolved, but I think he understands now a little bit more about it. I've met Piers Morgan twice. I don't know him. I've just met him. You know what I'm saying? Um, but I think, you know, he's a typical British tabloid journalist. He's a tabloid guy. So he will be a, probably pretty successful. I think you'll see him on Fox. I think that's where Murdoch's going to have him, the New York Post. Then he will put him on Fox. And I think he'll be an incredibly effective attack dog. I think that's what he's going to be there. He's going to be there, and he's going to be an attack dog on the left. And I think essentially, you know, uh, the role that some people like Steve Hilton or some of the other Brits or things like that have, I think it'll be very, very interesting to see. You know, one of the things that's most interesting to me about the whole Murdoch group is how many senior people they have who are non-American mm-hmm. in the group running an American media empire. I think it doesn't do them a good service in some of their publications, but I think over at Fox, for whatever reason it is, they have a unique sense of tabloid journalism um, in the Australian and the British press where essentially they will push one side. American journalists are always like, well, you know, we're non-biased, we're non-biased. Nobody in the UK, <laughs> but n- nobody in the world believes that, you know? And everybody is like, there's nobody at the Guardian, in fairness to the Guardian, there's nobody at the Guardian that says, oh, we're a moderate paper. No, we're a left-wing <laughs> paper. You know, they they admit it, you know, it's and, and I, I, I admire that. It's the reason why I can read the Guardian, because I know where they're coming from. But, you it's know. It's funny, I've, I've noticed that before, and I've wondered if that actually derives from a parliamentary system where you stand, you know, about five feet away from your opponent and just deliver this withering, brutal assault, if, if at all possible. You actually have to, you have to be presentable. It's none of this, you know, getting up on the floor of the U.S. Senate and be like, oh, yeah. you know, I, I defer to my good friend, uh, the senator from Massachusetts. <laughs> there's, there's yeah, I mean, I, with that. I, I look, you have to understand, I, I think. I think the fights are the fights and I think you got to have them. And if you don't have them and you try to, oh, I, I wish we were more bipartisan. I don't care if you're bipartisan or not. As long as I have two more votes than you, I don't care, you know. I mean, and then you then you and you knock me out of democracy. It means that there'll be something that matters, not these constant people trying to do move around and and, and do certain things. Look, my belief is getting back to Piers Morgan. I think we'll probably see Piers Morgan after he gets his feet on the ground with the New York Post. I think we'll probably see Piers Morgan on Fox in a show at some time in the near term, you know, and um, his instincts basically if I were them, I'd be targeting with Piers Morgan. I'd be targeting, I use the, I'd be targeting like educated white males, you know, who basically can't stomach some of the, you know, some of the Hannity and some of the other stuff like yes. that. But, and I, and, and Piers Morgan will be more of an intellectual uh, base for them. That's what I, that's what I would think, whether he gets a, a weekend show or whether he just becomes a, a, a regular, regular guest all the time. We will see. But I think the one thing will be is, you know, you're going to have to be up on your arguments if you're going to deal with him. He's not a dumb guy. I mean, that's the one thing about it. And their system turns out people, you know, would you have had a Reagan in a parliamentary system? I'm not sure. You certainly wouldn't have had. You certainly wouldn't have had a uh, uh, a Trump 
or a Biden, if you think about it, because Trump would have been taken out by the backbenchers. All right. And Biden, you know, you really think he could, you think questions, how long question time with him last? <laughs> right. You know, right. No, I thought that's a great idea. I would watch that if, uh, if Piers had I'm a show and I like what yeah. you say with, you know, an attack dog, George H.W. Bush said we need a kinder and gentler America. I don't know if I guess we maybe did get it, maybe not. Someone who's a little less kind and a less gentle with some of the poobahs of uh, of media, of business, and of politics, then uh, you know that could go a long way. Yeah, I mean, look, I I I am now part of a closed media empire, you know. So um, I, you know, they closed Apple Daily on us, but I, I got to tell you, the way we. We just would roll our eyes sometimes when we'd meet U.S. journalists who were like, you know, in, the, you know, wanted to be at all these things. My guys wanted to be outside behind the bush with a camera in their hand. You know what I'm saying? Or digging through your personal records. That's how they, they weren't looking to make friends or looking to be part of an administration. And I, I think that's the way I want journalists to be down and dirty and nasty. And it's one of the things I think, you know, you bring guys like Piers Morgan and people like that over. So what? Who cares if they're down and dirty? You know, the other thing, too, is in fairness to Morgan, you know, remember Glenn Beck over at, at, at CNN, you know, Beck, they should have kept him. They should have worked hard to keep him because basically he brought them in a different audience. You know what I'm saying? And he kind of mellowed. The, he gentled their condition for conservatives a little bit and moderates. And it also kept him in check a little bit, too. I thought it was going to be a really good mix for him. The show was doing pretty well. But what you saw is their culture there couldn't handle him. So in part, I think Piers Morgan's problem was, and this was somebody brought this up to me. I thought it was pretty good. We think he got tossed out for the anti-gun control stuff. Maybe it's just he wasn't as far to the left as he needed to be to get covered for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, that's 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 yeah. All right. Well, I have to leave it there. That's all the time we have for this episode of Simon White, but we'll be back again very soon with another episode. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, everyone.